Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada this morning. Each and every week I have the pleasure of speaking with a guest darshan, an individual who will help us unpack the scriptural reading that is offered in synagogues throughout the world. Every week, a particular section identified by tradition, known in Hebrew as a parasha, a weekly reading, is offered on Monday, Thursday, and Shabbat morning. This week, we are offering in Jewish, uh, in synagogues throughout the world, the portion from Genesis known as Lech Lecha. It is the third portion in the book of Bereshit, in the book of Genesis, and picks up at the end of the epic uh, known as Noah and the Tower of Babel. Let me offer to you an overview of this week's parasha before I introduce my guest. The parasha, beginning in Genesis 12 and continuing for a lengthy uh, amount of biblical verses through uh, Genesis 17, begins with God speaking to an individual known as Abram, commanding him, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. There, God tells him he will be made into a great nation. Abram and his wife Sarai, accompanied by his nephew Lot, journey to the land of Canaan, where we're told that Abram builds an altar and continues to spread the message of one God. A famine forces this individual, Avram, the first Jew in the Torah to have a covenantal relationship with the deity, to depart for Egypt, where Sarai is taken to Pharaoh's palace. Avram escapes death because they present themselves as brother and sister. A plague prevents the Egyptian king from uh, assaulting her, and convinces him to return her to Abram and to compensate, the brother revealed his husband with gold, silver, and cattle. They Back in the land of Canaan, Lot separates from Abram and settles in the evil city of Sodom, where he falls captive when the mighty ar armies of others conquer the five cities of Sodom Valley. Abram sets out with a small band to rescue his nephew defeat the four kings, and is blessed by Malkai Tzedek, the king of Salam, perhaps the original mention of Jerusalem in the Torah. God then seals the covenant between the parts with Avram, in which the exile and persecution of the people of Israel is foretold, and the Holy Land is bequeathed to them as their eternal heritage. As you can hear from this part of the overview. This is certainly uh, identified in the Torah as the beginning of the unique relationship with God and Abram's descendants. The story continues as it tells us that Sarai, unable to bear children 10 years after their arrival in the land of Canaan, tells Abram to marry her maidservant Hagar. 
the maidservant conceives, and the text tells us that strife develops between Sarai and Hagar. Hagar flees when Sarai treats her harshly. An angel convinces her to return and tells her that her son will father a populous nation. Ishmael is born in Avram's 86th year. Thirteen years later, God changes Avram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah and promises that a son will be born to them. And from this child, whom they call Isaac, will stem the great nation which God will establish a special bond. Abraham is commanded to circumcise himself and his descendants as a sign of the covenant between me and you, the text says. Abraham immediately complies in circumcising himself and all the males of his household. Well, this is a Torah portion chock full of interesting verses and interesting dynamics. And with me today is one of the most foremost uh, educators of Jewish uh, learning in Canada and throughout North America, Rabbi Elise Goldstein, now the spiritual leader of the City Shul in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. She founded Kolel, the Adult Center for Liberal Jewish Learning in Toronto in 1991, and she was its director and principal teacher for 20 years. Kolel was recognized worldwide as a leading institution in the field of Jewish adult study. In 2005, she was awarded North America's highest honor for Jewish education, the Covenant Award for Outstanding Educators. She was awarded an honorary doctorate by Ryerson University in 2017 for her outstanding work as an educator in Canada. I could go on and on uh, and regale you with the accomplishments of um, Rabbi Goldstein, uh, but that would mean that we'd have little time to talk about our Torah portion. So it's a pleasure to invite Rabbi Goldstein to our program and to chat with her this morning. Hello, Rabbi Goldstein. Hello, Rabbi Gardens. Nice to be here again. It is always a pleasure. So this Torah portion, uh, as I suggested, calls out for interpretation. And I thought we should begin uh, at the beginning. Um, in last week's Torah portion, in which we were introduced to Noah and the episode of Noah, the Torah portion, at least uh, in a very few words, identifies Noah as a righteous man in his generation. And we're not sure whether the Torah meant he was the best of a bad lot or he was actually righteous. But in this week's Torah portion, Avram shows up without any kind of identifying qualifiers. And since so much of this portion is about Avram and his behaviors, why do you think and how do you teach that Avram is chosen for this unique role? So the rabbis ask the same question many times in the Midrash and the Talmud. They are perplexed that you know, Noah is called righteous and, and Avram is, uh, and there's a constant comparison, by the way, between Noah and Avram in the Midrash and in rabbinic sources. And they say, you know, the thing is that <clears throat> uh, neither one of them really argues on behalf of humanity, right? Noah, you know, builds the ark and takes his wife and his kids and his 
and the animals two by two, but he doesn't get out there and say, you know, God, how can you do this? Right. Um, but Avram, you know, argues for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah later in the, in the Torah, we'll see that Avram says, you know, come on, give me a break. Let's find some righteous people and save the city. So Avram is always, you know, compared to Noah in, in arguing for, for the wicked to, you know, to be saved. But I would argue that Avram doesn't do very well arguing for his own family. You know, Avram is really one of those male characters who is really good in the public sphere, but when he comes home, he's not so good. You know, he's not an outstanding father and husband. Um, you know, so so is the Torah trying to teach us by negative example that one's inner being in their home has to match their outer being in the world, right? You know, we know lots of politicians who are so loving and, you know, impressive out there in the world, but then you hear they have, you know, terrible family life. Um, or is the Torah trying to say something about um, being the kind of person who stands up for, for those closest to you as well as those farthest from you? The, the Torah seems to anticipate uh, social media, uh, because today in social media, one is um, unable to make that separation between um, home as the hidden life and the public domain uh, because of the very dynamics of social media. And here the Torah um, doesn't in any way sugarcoat who Avram is. Not at all. Um, in fact, he gives us um, numerous episodes in which Avram's righteousness is called into question and um, numerous opportunities for us who uh, venerate him as the progenitor of the Jewish people to wonder, so what kind of DNA have we been given um, and have we been, uh, have been forced upon us? You've introduced this notion of the external and the internal. So let's take a moment um, with the most significant episode in the text. And I'll remind the listeners that, as I said in the overview, um, Avram is married to a woman, uh, Sarai. We don't know much about her. He's married to her at the beginning of this week's parasha, actually prior to the parasha itself. The parasha begins with them being a married couple. The parasha tells us that they have um, a servant um, um, who is named Hagar, who's not a member of the covenantal people. And Sarai says to Abram, I'm not able to give you a child. You won't have a descendant. Uh, take this uh, Hagar, um, however you might want to define her, Rabbi, well, I'll leave that to you, and um, see if she can give you progeny. She's successful, and uh, together Hagar and um, Avram have a son named Ishmael. And then the text says that the dynamics between the two women um, disintegrate, and that um, Hagar uh, is expelled with her son, um, and that um, it looks like she's going to, and, and Avram assents to this proposition, that even though this is the woman who's conceived his child, he agrees to it. 
and then God intervenes, even though it appears that God is uh, the instigator of this whole episode, um, and promises Hagar and Ishmael that they will be the uh, founders of a, a second great nation, which we identify as Islam. I think I've got that pretty much correct. So how do we understand this? What is this story all about? Not about Islam, but how do we understand Avram's role in this? Right. So definitely not about Islam because uh, that would be anachronistic. The Torah doesn't know anything about Christianity or Islam. So um, listen, this this story is a, it's a, a, the story of patriarchy. It's a story of how patriarchy defines and also destroys relationships. So here you have these two women. And by patriarchy, what do you mean? Well, the assumption that women's main, well, at least the biblical assumption, that women's main function is to have children for their male uh, spouses, to have male progeny. Um, And without that, they are bereft, they are valueless. um, And women bought into that because... Patriarchy is an overarching system, which benefits everybody at the end of the day. Um, and, and it was beneficial to a woman to have progeny because it gave her social status and gave her a financial um, <clears throat> stability. So here you have these two women. Um, they both need to produce heirs, okay? Hagar has a questionable status altogether. Um, it is impossible not to think of The Handmaid's Tale when you hear this story, Margaret Atwood's great book, um, because uh, here you have a handmaid given to a male master, if you will, um, and her own progeny is counted to be not her own progeny, but to be Avram's progeny, and in fact is counted to be Sarah's progeny. You can't help but make that analogy. And of course, Margaret Atwood was thinking of this story when she wrote it. Um, So you have two women fighting with each other for some status in the household. Uh, Sarai needs to have progeny to have status as Avram's wife. And Hagar needs to have progeny to have a higher status other than servant or slave or handmaid. Uh, So they're both going to benefit from having this progeny, but Hagar is going to be the 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 product of the pro the product of the problematic nature of polygamy and the problematic nature of servant servitude and the problematic nature of the role of women in the biblical uh, arc. So Hagar suffers terribly in this whole story. You know, she's given to Avram as if she's property, given by Sarai as property. And Sarai seems to think that's okay, and she'll deal with it later. But then when the child is born, Sarai comes to realize that even though the child is counted as hers, uh, it's not what she wanted. And um, she begins to mistreat or ill-treat Hagar, because now having progeny, Hagar has moved up a status and is almost equal to wife status. So Sarai has to protect her status. It's very fragile now. She hasn't given birth. She's given her handmaid to give birth for her. She has to protect her status as favored wife. It would be normal for Hagar now to become favored by Avram because she gave him progeny. 
She has to protect that. And she does what is, you know, threatened and defensive. Get rid of that progeny and get rid of the person who made that progeny. I personally am not angry with either woman in this story. I think they're both products of a terrible patriarchy and the byproducts of, of polygamy uh, and the byproducts of a society in which women are property uh, to be given at will and, and whose sole function is to give children. So from a sociological perspective, I'm sure you're absolutely correct. From a textual perspective, we have this unusual episode in which women uh, play a central role. If we were to compare um, this uh, Torah as sacred texts to other sacred texts um, in the monotheistic world um, or other cognate texts, um, Lechwacha stands out um, as giving women essentially more airtime than many, many other texts. Now, we can interpret, um, as you've done so eloquently, that it's not the best role in the world to be a woman in a patriarchal society. But why do you think and how do you teach that this story spends so much airtime on women in general. I mean, they are central characters, though they may not have great status. We have the episode in Egypt. We have the episode with Hagar. We then have the episode that we haven't talked about, and that is Lot and his wife and daughter at Sodom. Um, And then we have the circumcision in which Sarah plays a significant role, I mean, they're not on the margins of the text. So why does the Torah do that? I'm just going to say that I've written extensively about women as liminal characters in the Bible. And I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to make a pitch for people to read my first book, Revisions, Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens. Is it still in print? It is still in print and you can get it on Amazon. It's also in the library. People can get copies of it from there. So so tell us the name again, Rabbi Goldstein. Revisions, Seeing Torah Through a Feminist Lens. Great. Okay. Um, and in that book, I talk a lot about women as liminal characters. So I want to I answer your question that way. So the book of Genesis is replete with stories in which women play major roles. Okay. Um, But I still would posit, suggest, that women are liminal characters. So what that means is the following. In Shakespeare, a liminal character comes on stage, stirs the pot, changes the plot, makes an interesting something or other happen, leaves, and we don't hear from that liminal character again. They are very important. Liminal characters are not unimportant. They are super important to the storyline, but they are not the main actors of the plot of the story. So the truth of the matter is Lot's wife and daughters are not the main characters. They're liminal. In this story, Sarai actually changes that liminal role and becomes the main actor. 
And it's very interesting to see that. Now, she becomes the main actor the way Rebecca becomes the main actor later when she switches the the, uh, blessing of Isaac and Jacob. And so for the listeners, just let me remind them that Rebecca is going to be Isaac's wife. And we're going to have another set of family stories when Avram, Abraham, and Sarai, Sarah's son, Isaac, goes out to get a a wife and he marries Rebecca. And she then has a similar role, which listeners can hear discussed in a couple of weeks. So So there aren't many stories in which women as liminal characters change history. Okay, but this is one in which Sarai changes history. And the history she changes is that we're not Ishmaelites, right? We we are, Isaac becomes the progenitor of the Jewish people and not Ishmael. Um, and Hagar changes history in this, uh, in this Parsha, because when Hagar is expelled into the desert, the reader is left to wonder, is she going to make it? As you said, it looks like, you know, she's sent out with a little bit of water and that's it. But what happens in the text is so profound in that she goes off to the desert and an angel of God, of our God, of Adonai, meets her in the desert and says, Hagar, look up. There's a well. You're going to be okay. And Hagar looks up and she sees the well. And then the angel blesses her and says, your son will be a mighty nation right? Hagar changes history. And of course, for Muslims, this is a central story that Hagar is blessed with that prophecy of being the progenitor of another people. Um, Hagar changes history for the Ishmaelites. And Sarai changes history for the Jews. This is, if you'll let me say, sui generis, one of a kind uh, in the Hebrew Bible, where women are not only liminal players, but actually change history. Now, Sarai changes history through a very hard story. You know, she's sort of forced into this choice between Ishmael and Isaac, which is not a happy choice. And that, my friend, is a patriarchal choice, right? That only one child can get the inheritance. Think of, uh, you know, later of Esau and Jacob. And only one child can be the progenitor of the Jewish people. This kind of um, hierarchy of, you know, one person above everyone is a patriarchal notion. There's no question. And so in the, in the story, that hierarchy extends all the way to the deity because... You can only have one. <laughs> Avram, right? Because there's only one God. Right. And Avram is portrayed, except for the episode that you alluded to at Sodom and Gomorrah in which he argues with God, he is um, portrayed as quite a nebbish <laughs> in relationship to the two women. Do you have to translate that for your listeners? Nebish is someone without a lot of backbone. Um, and he's caught between the two women in the text. Um, he doesn't know what to do. Sarai tells him, uh, you have to get rid of Hagar and her son, and he seems to shrug his shoulders and, by the paucity of words, seems to suggest, I'd like to keep her around. I mean, it's my kid. Doesn't have anything evil or negative to say about Hagar. One could even suggest that, you know, 
She's um, risen in his sights beyond the handmaiden role to something more uh, of an emotional connection. Um, And God has to intervene in effect. That's right, because to tell Abram to do it. To tell Abraham, listen, this isn't, you got to move here. Your job is to be a mover and a shaker, not to be somebody on the sidelines. Um, And so, you know, you're... Um, image of patriarchy um, begins with God and Abraham, interestingly enough, his son as well. Correct. Don't seem to be wonderful role models for patriarchy. Well, they're unsuccessful, right? They're unsuccessful models. And we keep trying. So, all right, if Abraham's not going to be our best role model, we'll try Isaac. Isaac kind of fails too, right? I mean, Isaac also is portrayed without having a lot of um, spine. And, you know, the most beautiful scene of Isaac is when he takes Rebecca into his tent and the text says, and he was comforted after the loss of his mother. Like the poor guy, he he needs a mommy, so he marries a wife, right? Um, So then we say, okay, we're going to try again. We'll try again with Jacob and Esau. Well, they have their own issues, right? It's not until Moses. Right. Right. And with Moses, who has no family, who has no family, right? Who has to get out of family dynamics, exactly. right? He's expelled from his family. Exactly. But is the text telling us in um, these early stories, actually in all of Genesis, that when you're in a monotheistic religious relationship, a covenantal relationship, there's no room for other than one father? Not in the Christian sense of father, but I think I think that the text is trying to deal with. This is a story of patriarchy gone bad. And I think that I I see it as a subversive text, right, from a feminist perspective. This is a story warning us of the problem of patriarchy in which women are exchanged as property, in which women are used as property, and the outcome is not happy, okay, in which women's uh, ability to give birth is seen as a commodity rather than as a sacred um, partnership with with their partner. So I think it's a warning story. And also I think it's a warning story about um, the, the way we judge the outsider, right? So Hagar uh, is set up. There's no reason for us not to like her, right? She's set up as a positive character. And then all of a sudden, the text tells us she started to act haughty, right? And she was her master, her mistress, Sarai, was lowered in her eyes. That is such an important text because it's basically telling us even women who are the subjects of this hierarchy play into the hierarchy themselves. Okay. And Sarai plays into it by saying, this upstart, this this servant who had a baby is not going to be equal to me. Right now that she's been, she's given birth, she could be equal to me. I'm going to put her in her place. And that's Sarai playing the hierarchy game that the patriarchy wants everybody to play to keep one person on top, right? And they both suffer from it. So, Rabbi, there are so many questions that we don't have time for, but I want to remind our listeners that even though um, you have a revisionist perspective on the text, the text is still read in your synagogue each week of course. <laughs> and is seen as sacred text. Um, and your uh, wonderful reinterpretation and revisioning is simply part and parcel 
of the Jewish notion that the text needs to be Unpacked. probed. But that's why my revisionist view is so important for your listeners to understand, that I see the text as subversive, meaning I see the text as coming to teach us a very important moral lesson, which is all the things we hold to be to be assumptive, that men have the power and women don't, that there should be a hierarchy, that there's all of those things. I'm going to have to cut you off and, and thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Elise Goldstein of the City Shul of Toronto, Canada. You can hear our podcast uh, recording on the chri.ca website, on iTunes, and now on YouTube for uh, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. Thank you.